We are in the middle of the cyber battle space. It is the week of April 27th, and welcome to episode 22 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues in national security and foreign policy. I'm Lester Munson, NSI Senior Fellow and former Staff Director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Today, we'll be doing a deep dive with Dr. Samantha Ravitch, former Deputy National Security Advisor for Vice President Dick Cheney and Commissioner for the Cyberspace Solarium Commission. Dr. Ravitch currently serves as the Chairman for the Foundation for the Defense of Democracy's Center on Cyber and Technology Innovation and its Transformative Cyber Innovation Lab. She also currently serves as the Vice Chair of the President's Intelligence Advisory Board. Dr. Ravitch, thanks for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay. So the Cyber Solarium Commission uh, that you were a member of released its final report a little over a month ago. Can you walk us through how the report came together and what your role on the commission was? Absolutely. So yes, we rolled out on Wednesday, March 11th of 2020 on Capitol Hill um, in a room with about 250 people, um, back slapping, handshaking. I got a hug from the uh, Deputy Director of Homeland Security. And then immediately we all went into lockdown thinking, oh my, you know, it was not a bad thing when we were two weeks past March 11th. Um, but we, we are really thankful that we were able to have that rollout. Let me give you some background. First of all, Solarium. What the, what the heck? What, what's up with that word? Um, it has its, the, the commission itself has its roots in a different commission, um, a solarium um, uh, project by President Eisenhower in 1953. That was named after the sunroom solarium in the White House. Uh, President Eisenhower wanted to um, have great minds come together, three different teams to kind of go at it um, in terms of different ways to look at what we were going to do vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union. That process ended in uh, what became Eisenhower's new look and really formulated uh, the next 40 years of the Cold War. Um, this Cyberspace Solarium Commission was being spoken about uh, for the last uh, couple of years. Um, Representative Mike Gallagher, I'll talk for a second about who's, who was in the commission. Um, Representative Mike Gallagher uh, had written his dissertation on Eisenhower and the Solarium um, uh, report. So he and I had Congressman, a couple of Congressman Gallagher, is, Congressman Gallagher is what we might call a nerd. <laughs> but a wonderful, awesome one at that. Um, a, a representative from, from Wisconsin, for those that don't know, uh, know Mike. Um, and uh, a number of us had been speaking about, you know, there are bits and pieces of cyber strategy throughout Congress, throughout different agencies in the executive branch, but really it is time to take a step back and say, how are we going to position the United States going forward in this world of, of cyber below the level of kinetic warfare? We're getting eaten alive in terms of our economy, our military, our theft of intellectual property, our PII, what are we going to do about it? looking broadly um, uh, across uh, government and society. So in the National Defense Authorization Act, um, this uh, congressionally mandated commission was established, the Cyberspace Solarium Commission. 
Um, it's a very interesting commission because it has four sitting members of Congress on it, um, two from the Senate, two from the House, uh, uh, Senator uh, Angus King, independent from Maine, Senator Sass, a Republican from Nebraska, um, from the House, Mike Gallagher and Jim Langevin, Democrat from Rhode Island. Um, there are six outsiders on the commission. I am one, folks like Tom Fanning, who is the CEO of Southern Company, uh, one of the major, the country's major utilities, nine million customers. Chris Inglis used to be number two at NSA, Suzanne Spaulding from the Obama administration, wonderful people. And then four sitting members of the executive branch. Um, and uh, the Deputy uh, Secretary of Defense, um, the uh, Deputy Director of Homeland Security, um, the Deputy Director of the FBI, and the Principal Deputy Director of, of National Intelligence, PDDNI. So to have members of Congress and the executive branch and outsiders sitting together in a room debating these hefty issues um, had a lot of uh, constitutional lawyers scratching their heads. Is this even constitutional? Can you do this? We got through those hoops. Um, it was a remarkable experience. Uh, 28 meetings we held since basically May, June of 2019 through the rollout. Each meeting, two hours. Um, each meeting, at least three of the four members of Congress and most of the executive branch and most of the six outsiders and the staff attending. So it was taken seriously. It was, um, it was an amazing experience. In terms of setting the table for what the, the commission dealt with um, in, in recent history on these issues, the report mentions unchecked predation by American adversaries and made the case uh, to make the case for an overhaul of cyber defense policies and programs. Can you talk a little bit about examples of this unchecked predation? What were we looking at? What were the vulnerabilities that have been exposed recently in the United States? Let me just talk, talk for a moment about some of the ones that we highlighted in the report um, and then just kind of the, the overarching framework of of predation against uh, the United States economy, its citizenry, and its military. Um, uh, for your listeners that may not know um, what's been going on in, in the kind of cyber realm over the last few years, we highlighted things such as, you know, Russia crippling three Ukrainian energy uh, companies in, in the middle of winter. And we highlighted Iran's attacks on uh, Saudi Aramco, um, basically bricking up uh, uh, 30,000 computers and, and pushing one of the world's largest energy producers, um, having to go back to pen and paper. Um, we looked at North Korea's uh, uh, bank heist um, of the Bangladesh Central Bank, um, and of course, China's advanced uh, uh, persistent threat, APT-10, um, from, that went from 2006 to 2018, compromising um, uh, important and critical uh, personal identifiable information of over 100,000 U.S. Navy personnel. Those were just some of the bits and pieces of this cyber threat that, that we highlighted. But of course, for your listeners to understand, it is a constant battle, right? This is, this is really what focused the minds of, of the commissioner, 
we are in the middle of the cyber battle space. It is happening constantly. It is happening in terms of what actors like China and their, their you know, state on entities or proxies are doing, hollowing out our intellectual property and truly crippling some of our industries. It happens what Russia is doing, mucking about in energy, in, in, uh, in election security. Um, uh, it has to do with, as I said, a going after actors um, uh, in countries in, in both in the region um, and here in the United States. Uh, and of course, you know, North Korea, always, uh, always a wild card, but let me say um, with a very robust, uh, significant cyber capability. Some say it's below the level of armed conflict because things aren't obviously exploding and there's not a lot of blood to be seen. Um, but take down economy, and we'll get to where we are now, take down an energy grid, um, uh, make it so that the United States has to be concerned that during a time of wartime, our satellites might not see, our ships might not sail, our planes might not fly because all of our systems have been compromised, um, you can see how this this really does change the shape and the texture and the nature of um, how we operate in the world and pursue our interests. So the uh, the report focuses on a concept called layered deterrence. Can you talk about what the concept of layered deterrence means and how that uh, recommendation uh, became the focus of what the commission did? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let me lead off by saying something I should have said at the beginning. Um, <clears throat> we clearly were a bipartisan um, commission. It was maybe more accurate to say nonpartisan. Um, we had uh, very vigorous debates and I wouldn't say arguments, but truly vigorous debates not on political lines. It would, you'd be hard pressed. Anyone looking in, in our 28 meetings to say, ah, that's the Republican or that's the conservative. Ah, that's the liberal. Um, it, it would, these were serious, hard discussions um, that, uh, you know, your program's called Fault Lines. They were fault lines perhaps on um, a broader, how's the best way to reach our end goal of helping secure um, America, our economy and our citizenry. Um, but not fault lines on, on left and right. Having said that, there was a very vigorous, again, nonpartisan debate early on about the question, does deterrence work in our new cyberspace battlefield? Um, and we wrestled with this. And there were a number of uh, very, very smart um, folks, outsiders who came to brief the commission, arguing that deterrence is dead um, because we are in a world where there are constant um, uh, cyber attacks of uh, low, medium, and, and high levels. Um, clearly, deterrence is no longer a theory that we should be investing in, and it, it went out with the Cold War. Um, we wrestled with that and basically uh, decided to go on a different path. So layered deterrence has three pieces of it. One is to kind of shape behavior. Um, shape behavior of the international community, shape behavior of the adversary, either through entanglement 
agent or making them understand that, uh, you know, we are in the international supply chain together. So attack the supply chain and you're really attacking yourselves. Um, uh, treaty organizations talk about some of those things, but it's really shaping the behavior of the actors and entities, states and non-state entities um, that live on this, this uh, common ground of, of the internet. Uh, the second of layer deterrence is deny benefits. Um, if the adversary keeps having to smash into a wall over and over and over again without getting any benefits from it, um, they wind up with a broken skull and they realize that probably uh, it's not really worth it. And so they are deterred because their skull is broken. Um, and so the deny benefits piece of the report is how do we shore up our own resiliency? But that means denying benefits to the adversary by shoring up our resiliency, by hardening our castle walls. The third um, aspect of layer deterrence is, of course, impose costs, right? Um, how, how do we ensure that the adversary knows we have the capability and the will to strike them very hard and very fast if we are indeed attacked? So deterrence, um, you know, there is lots of scrambling now to figure out where the borders are in cyberspace. Um, they push, we push back, they push, we push back. Um, but uh, for them to know very clearly that um, uh, there will be consequences, we again have will and capabilities to impose costs, is a deterrent for them to go further, faster, higher order of, um, of levels of aggression. During this coronavirus crisis, we don't seem to have a great continuity of economy plan. Uh, where you know the the debate about reopening the economy is very political and uh, seems to be impacted by public uh, sentiments and perhaps not the most uh, planned scientific approach. So when the report talks about continuity of economy in in the context of cyber defense. What does that mean? And do you think it's, and, and has there been anything that's happened in the last few weeks that has uh, maybe chastened that recommendation as something that, that uh, may not be quite as doable as originally thought? So <clears throat> the background of the continuity of the economy, um, one, it kind of, uh, kind of takes off from existing plans that have been in place since the beginnings of the Cold War on things called continuity of, of government and continuity of operations, right? And the thinking there during the Cold War is if there was a nuclear attack on the U.S. homeland, do we have a government that can exist to have a second strike capability back on the Soviet Union? And do we have secure communications? Um, can our government work? The thinking behind continuity of the economy is that um, first and foremost, the strength of the U.S. military rides on the back of the strength of the American economy, right? And um, if our economy is brought low, can we truly project power and, and protect our interests at home and, and worldwide? Um, and so continuity of the economy, we believed, was a natural extension of this is in especially in, in the thinking of, of cyber and cyberspace, the the power does not reside in the government. It resides in the economy. When we started thinking about, well, if there was a major cyber event attack, um, how could we build resilience into the economy um, to get it up and running? 
um, as quickly as possible, kind of a cyber day after, as a major plank of deterrence. Because once again, for the adversary to know we will not be down on our knees um, if we suffered a major cyber attack, they would, ha- they would feel our wrath, um, means that we have to be able to get the economy back up and running. So it really took... Um, a few, there's a few different pieces of the thinking of, of continuity of the economy. Um, the, the, the first is, which are the pieces of the economy upon which large other parts of the economy reside? So we all know the banks, you can't have a financial system without the banks. We all understand critical infrastructure, you know, the big, the big grid operators, of course, our electric grid operations reside 60% on oil and gas. So clearly that is a piece of, you, you start pulling that thread, you see to have a electricity grid, you also need power and gas. Well, how is that being distributed? Well, then you get the pipelines. You see now during coronavirus, I would say, um, uh, you know, our, our food system, our trucking, our distribution networks, our critical infrastructure. So the first part was if you imagined a map on a large wall that had all the interconnectivities of the economy, there would be blinking nodes that really were the primary movers and shakers in the economy, right? So the first part is understanding what those nodes are, right? And they would have priority of how to get them back online. Example, Verizon or AT&T, right? Is it, is it the responsibility of a Verizon or AT&T to figure out who gets their systems and networks up, run, up and running first? You know, is it the first person that calls them, the little old lady in Peoria? Is it, is it Jamie Dimon or somebody up in New York? No, you could say that it is a national security and national purpose discussion for the government to already have in place with those critical nodes. Hey, this is the order of battle on connecting the economy to get it back up and running if and when we you know, suffer a major um, cyber attack. So the first part is this understanding the nodes and um, working with those critical and essential infrastructure operators to be more broadly defined than we defined in the past. Again, distribution, think about, you know, what's going on now. Um, the second is data protection. So the banks know what data they, they hold offline. If they had to, I guess it happened after Hurricane Sandy, if they had to come back online from a cold start. So the idea is, well, there's a lot of other pieces of the U.S. economy that don't know what their critical data is, and they don't hold it securely offline, um, that they can go back from a cold start. So the second piece of this is for the U.S. government to help work with those pieces of the U.S. economy that need to hold their data securely offline. Um, And the third piece of it is not everything is going to be prioritized. Not every business is going to be prioritized, and certainly not every individual. The U.S. government just cannot be there to help everyone in the event of a major cyber attack. Um, And so increasing the personal resiliency of small, medium-sized enterprises of the individual um, so that they can uh, do what they can to take care of themselves for the interim um, as we are getting the, the critical nodes of the economy back up and running. 
Um, the idea, so that is the, the main thrust of it. Um, the legislative um, language recommendation is that uh, an agency in the U.S. government, most likely DHS, most likely CISA with the help of FEMA, but other agencies, will do a continuity economy plan and exercise. Um, and uh, as we can see from coronavirus, um, that doesn't exist. So um, I think this is a good segue into a, a conversation about, about Congress and what Congress needs to do in its, in its own uh, structures to deal with cyber defense issues. You know, politically, we've seen, I, I think, in the last couple of months, how uh, the the response to a crisis is completely political, and you're seeing constituencies uh, become active and uh, lobbying for the things that they think they need. And uh, you know that's uh, one of the great risks of this representative democracy system that we have. Part of the Solarium recommendations is the establishment of two committees on the Hill, one in the House, one in the Senate that would focus on cyber issues. And I think they're modeled after the intelligence committees in each body. Can you talk about that recommendation and how it might fit into this question? Prominent members there, uh, all smart people representing, you know, two from each body. How much of a conversation was there about the, the practicality of that recommendation in terms of other committees in their jurisdictions, the ability to spend, you know, appropriators at the end of the day, are the ones who are are doling out the cash for various activities. Uh, so can you can you can you tease out more of some of these uh, these threads in the recommendation for these two new committees on the Hill? Yeah. So <clears throat> this was a recommendation that actually was generated by the members of Congress in the commission, um, recognizing that it will be a heavy lift to get it. But the members of Congress, um, obviously, as well as the, the, the rest of us realize that there are 80 different congressional committees um, overseeing activities in cyberspace throughout the U.S. government. 80, right? So that's absurd. Um, and we all realize that. And um, it will not be easy um, to reorganize Congress to deal with it. Um, but uh, the members of Congress on the commission are dedicated to um, uh, pushing this forward. Uh, the real important reason, not only to streamline, to make sure that Congress has adequate oversight, because frankly, they, with 80, 80 committees, they don't have oversight. Um, you know, you, it's kind of like a, a child going to mom, and if they don't like the answer from mom, they go to dad, right? And then they can play off each other. And, and I think the members of Congress realize that certain parts of the executive branch, um, ha, ha, you know, have a history of being able to do that for, for many, many decades. Um, but the other real reason, uh, and, and this again gets back to something that you, you mentioned in this current situation, coronavirus, um, we need expertise, right? We need expertise, dedicated staff that can build up um, the expertise to really understand these, these issues that are, you know, yes, technological, but also kind of societal and psychological. How do you get people, you know, what are the market mechanisms um, uh, to get businesses or individuals or the government to do what it needs to do, um, even at a moment when maybe they're not suffering a major attack. So um, 
there is a real need for a deep bench on understanding these issues. Um, and because there are going to have to be risks that are accepted. And our country, and we see it now, I think, uh, separate side note, um, on coronavirus, um, what's very frustrating to me is just a kind of a, a geeky individual as well. There are a whole bunch of us dorks and geeks on this commission um, is, is the lack of a real public discourse on the, um, the, what risks are adequate to accept. Right? In coronavirus world, um, you may have a certain risk of, of going and getting the virus if you open up the economy. True. But what are the risks and the likelihood of the increase in morbidity and mortality from every percentage of GDP that declines? You have to accept certain risks, and but you, you want to do it based off of information and data um, to give yourself the best chance of accepting um, the least amount of risk for the optimal benefit. And that's what we don't have kind of in the discussion at the moment on coronavirus land, but also on, on the acceptance of risk in, in the cyber world. And so having deep expertise um, to kind of uh, be able to explore these issues is critical and you just can't do it with the current configuration in Congress. So uh, let's spin a little bit more on this question. Uh, Washington, of course, is a, is a swamp uh, we've got a lot of interests at play, uh, a lot of uh, external actors uh, who come to Washington to uh, make sure their views and interests are reflected in the actions the government takes. Uh, some people think the swamp is bad. Other people think, um, you know, without a swamp, the lake would die. Uh, and it's an important part of the ecosystem on the commission. Was there a discussion about natural constituencies uh, in uh, cyber defense? Are there are there key elements? You talked about nodes of the economy. Did that extend to the policy discussions and the political discussions that will inevitably take place over government decisions? You know, it's difficult because, as you can tell from our conversation on continuity of the economy, um, I think, you know, the, the commissioners understood that um, economic actors, private sector actors, um, had a key role in helping to make uh, our, our nation more secure, a way, a role that previously they never really had when we look back into the Cold War. So what is an appropriate um, role that they can play? I mean, we, we kind of... We didn't want to give give into just this pablum of you know public private partnerships, right? I, I mean, you know, we spent a lot of time thinking about how to incentivize um, uh, private sector actors, critical infrastructure, sy sy systematically critical infrastructure, sicky, um, uh, to both have their voices heard in government. Um, but also understanding that it is a two-way street, that if we want to incentivize them to do the right thing, the government has to, for instance, be potentially sharing much more threat information um, than it traditionally has. So it is, a, it is a rebalancing of how the government works with the private sector. What, what is that transactional almost nature have to look like? Um, we dove down into that on cyber insurance, uh, you know, requiring, can we require members of the defense industrial base to have cybersecurity insurance? What do they get if they get it? 
right? Um, you know, do they, do they have, you know, additional benefits if they have it? Can they not apply for government contracts if they don't? Um, we looked at one of our recommendations, amending Sarbanes-Oxley, um, you know, so that uh, uh, boards and, and the C-suite have to sign off on cybersecurity best practices for public companies, well, if they're going to put money to this, you know, what benefit do they get from it other than helping themselves because they are part of an ecosphere, an ecostructure of the entire economy. So they need to get something in return. It can't just be the U.S. government overreach on the private sector. Thou shalt do this. The private sector, given how important they are to this whole um, configuration, has to get something in return. So um, there's a lot in the report, and it will be teased out in the, the legislation to come that recognizes that the center of power um, is not, uh, let's just say, gra- greatly overweighted towards the U.S. government versus the private sector in this. So let's uh, let's turn to um, you know the Article Two branch of the government, the executive branch, and the commission's recommendation for the creation of a national cyber director. This is a person who would be. Uh, in the White House, uh, appointed by the president, confirmed by the Senate. And it looks like on your, um, uh, on the uh, diagram of, of these changes, be it basically equivalent to the National Security Advisor. So if, if Dr. Samantha Ravitch becomes the National yeah. Cyber Director, uh, how, does, how does she grab a hold of all of the elements of the executive branch that are dealing with these issues at Homeland Security, at state, at defense? all these places and make things more coherent and accountable. Yeah. I, I, so the, the, the thinking of the commissioners on the um, uh, national cyber director was that, you know, the, the president commander in chief of the, the U S armed forces, I mean, that uh, that person needs the, the, the guidance of um, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, uh, an aggregator of who does what, who can do what in the U.S. government. Because just like 80 different congressional um, commissions, there are lots of moving parts in um, all across the executive branch, especially as we bring in the private sector, right? So, you know, DOD through the defense industrial base, let alone U.S. Cyber Command, um, uh, obviously the Department of State as we try to shape the uh, behavior, the Department of Energy as we um, deny benefits by shoring up critical infrastructure. Um, you know, to, to date, they kind of operate in their own silos and every now and then they, you know, they uh, either conflict with one another or realize that, hey, there's a other department that can help assist on this. Um, but they they need a guiding hand. And that's what um, a national cyber director out of the White House, not operational. So they're not uh, getting down into, you know, how X, Y, Z critical infrastructure um, is being maintained or uh, figuring out the best way to hack into an adversary's uh, military complex. Um, those are for the experts in the various agencies. But it does need to kind of come together to have have an overarching uh, sequencing um, because the, the, the lines of the lines of communication, even inside the executive branch um, are uh, not always the best. Let's just put it that way. So uh, let's, let's turn to kind of international affairs. Uh, one of the key recommendations made by the, by the commission in the report 
is that the United States should seek to work with a coalition of other willing nations to establish norms and promote responsible behavior in cyberspace. What, is, what does that look like? Is that, a, is that a cyber NATO? Is it a five eyes or a nine eyes? I, I note um, that the United Nations itself doesn't really play a big role in the, in the report. It's only mentioned a few times. At least one of those is in a fairly negative fashion because it appears that the Chinese and the Russians are uh, doing everything they can to undermine activities by the United Nations. So what does is, what is this coalition of the willing look like? Are we, are we recreating an apparatus uh, that may exist already or, or is, this, is this the kind of flexibility we need to be responsive in today's world? Yeah, I, I think most, if not all, of, of the commissioners um, uh, felt like I do, which is what we don't need is, is essentially another worthless piece of paper um, that, that uh, the United States signs on to that binds the United States to some course of action, um, but has no constraints on our adversaries who flout it um, even before the ink is dry. And so within the, the recommendations on kind of shaping behavior Behavior, international norms. There is um, language that discusses, in not in these precise words, but um, uh, taking another look at uh, Reagan's trust but verify. Um, we need the technology to be able to verify before we can trust some of these actors in, in the international organizations or, or other states um, that uh, we're going to sign on to any norms. Um, because unless we can, we have the technology itself uh, to, to verify that um, uh, they are doing what they um, have signed up to do, they're, you can't put the cart before the horse and sign on to a treaty that has no ability to be monitored. I think we've set out a hopeful path, recognizing that there was a lot of work to be done um, uh, before we would uh, actually go ahead with any kind of new treaties or, or new organizations. Now, having said that, um, I, you know, it is also our hope um, that uh, more free market democracies who kind of share similar systems of, of governance and, and uh, enshrining uh, the individual rights um, of their citizenry would have more in common to kind of first walk down that path together. Um, you know, before we kind of open up new international laws and regimes and treaties um, to those countries uh, that uh, do not think in those ways. Did the commission look at, at authorities here, constitutional authorities? Who makes the decision if the U.S. is going to respond to an, a hostile action from abroad? Is it, is it the president? Does he have to consult with Congress, is there, uh, is there the equivalent of a cyber declaration of war where you can imagine the, the legislative body becoming involved? What was the advanced thinking there in terms of the legitimacy of the president or the or someone else in the executive branch acting in those instances. Yeah, so you know, there's kind of kind of three levels, right? In terms of imposing costs, I mean, we have a cyber command um, that can act below, uh, you know, under under what is a declared act of war. They're constantly involved. Um, there's language in the report to strengthen their ability um, to hunt bad actors across uh, DoD networks. Um, right now, there's a little bit of um, uh, 
uh, mother may I going on in the in even within the military um, where uh, cyber command has to say uh, to a different command um, can we hunt on your network we see bad actions um, and that kind of slows things down so kind of strengthening the hand of cyber command in that way strengthening the US government's ability to take down things like botnets um, so there's a lot of the daily um, pace and and um, uh, imposing costs that has to occur much more rapidly, and the commission has language to kind of deconflict some of the lines. New new authorities, um, for the most part, are not needed, um, but there needs to be um, a more specified. Let's just call it uh, instructions in order in battle. Clearly, then the next step is you know that we talked about the the White House and the role of the White House. Um, there's a lot more that can be done to impose costs again under um, a declaration of uh, of war. Um, and for that, and the members of Congress were very clear about the need for um, the executive branch to uh, uh, to uphold uh, its constitutional responsibilities for advice and consent um, from from Congress on it. But again, the report really in that third section on imposing costs, um, its clarifying roles, it's it's um, almost giving the um, uh, the confidence for um, our existing uh, actors within the executive branch um, to take the necessary actions um, that they need to, uh, to, to deter and defend. I think this has been a great conversation, and we've really just skimmed the surface of a lot of uh, fascinating issues. Uh, and so in a way, I'm really sorry we don't, we're not going to do three or four of these, but uh, is is there anything that's on your mind about these issues that we that we didn't cover that you'd like to mention here before we wrap up? Uh, no, I would just say that one of the other things about coronavirus that is becoming clear is um, we're walking into a new technological sphere, right? With all of us now working at home, who knows how this is, you know, going to play out? Things that many people thought, uh, you know, five, six months ago about giving more of their medical data um, to be shared. You know, I, can I fly in a plane or do I need to connect my medical data to my passport, right? I mean, these, um, and how is that going to be protected, right? There's going to be a lot of other concerns and questions um, that come out of the thinking on, from coronavirus um, that uh, I think the, the Cyber Slayering Commission set us up very well to be able to, to make recommendations, continuing recommendations based off of the data and the experiences um, that we're all having in these last few months. Okay, that's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi.gmu.edu. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Grant Haver, our director and producer, for his amazing assistance. Please join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.